I want to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 17 in the second week of Lent in our series, The Unvarnished Jesus. What do we mean by the unvarnished Jesus? Well, how many of you love home improvement TV shows like HGTV? Yes, yes, yes. A lot fewer of you than I thought. We're not big HGTV fans. Man, I've seen some of your houses. They're beautiful. They're great. Maybe you don't need them. But one thing that I've observed about these shows is that almost always they get into a house and they look down and they say, we got to get rid of this floor. So they start to peel back the crusty linoleum or they go into the 70s shag carpet that's just nasty and grungy and they start to peel it back. And what do they say, HGTV fans? Maybe we'll find what? Hardwood floors. Not just because it's beautiful, but because it's original and there's something with character and it's awesome and it's like they hit the jackpot when they peel back these crusty old layers and find this foundational flooring that brings out so much of that home's beauty. In so many ways and for so many weeks, I'm going to find different ways of telling you that's what we're up to when we're trying to get at the unvarnished Jesus. But it all presupposes that we may admit that we might have added layers of meaning and understanding and misunderstanding to our image of Jesus. You say, of course not. I've got him all figured out. I would say, no, you don't. He's unfigureoutable. You can follow him, but even his closest disciples, as we'll see, can't get their hands and hearts and heads fully around him, which is why we need to keep seeking and keep finding. What we can know about him is enough to transform us and give us life. But we need to admit that some of the things that we've inherited some things we think we've discovered, and some things that have creeped in for our culture need to be re-examined. Not everything needs throwing out like crusty linoleum. For instance, Jesus is Lord. That's the hardwood foundation about what it means to set off and find life and life eternal with him. But others, that needs examining. He's too surprising and compelling to stop seeking and finding. So what we're going to do each week, Lord willing, is ask and answer two questions. The first is, what is the varnish or layer that needs removing from our image of Jesus and his way? The second, although I'm going to flip-flop these this evening if you're paying attention, is this. In what way is Jesus inviting us to see him more clearly this week? This is not, let's just tear the thing down just for fun. We're removing layers so that we might find a more beautiful foundation for our image of Jesus in his way. That's what we're after. So Jesus has just removed in some sense in Matthew 17 some linoleum or layers of his earthly self. And he's shown a little bit of heavenly light for a few of his disciples on a mountain in what's known as the transfiguration. Have you heard about the transfiguration? He gives a few of his disciples a glimpse of his godness. There's a theological term called the hypostatic union. Can you say hypostatic? I think it's fun to stay. That sounds lovely. 
And it's some way that the theologians have constructed that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. So in Matthew 17, he shows a little bit more of his 100% godness. And then he comes down the mountain into a mess that his disciples have made. And then he gets to show us a little bit of his human side. Because Jesus is going to get frustrated. But it's an opportunity to remove some false understandings. And it's an invitation to faith. That's what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 17. We're going to put ourselves in the shoes of some of the characters of the story, and we're going to answer those two questions. You with me? Matthew chapter 17, let's start in verse 14. So when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Y'all ain't ready for this. You unbelieving and perverse generation. Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon. That's strange. And it came out of the boy. And he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in a private and asked, uh, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as what? Small. Wait, you have little faith. But if you have a little faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from there to here, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Your Bible may not have verse 21. It was most surely added later. And it sounds like something in the Mark version of the story. It says, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. So, the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. This is not the first time that Jesus has talked about a mustard seed. Leilani read it earlier and did a beautiful job. This is what happens when you sign up for things with these sign-up sheets. You get to do them, and it's beautiful and wonderful. Thank you, Leilani, this week and Reiner last week. It's not the first time he's talked about mustard seeds, specifically faith being like a mustard seed. We read Matthew 13. And what's interesting about that parable is that the mustard seed is not actually the smallest seed. Literally in the text, it says smaller. But Jesus is just kind of saying it's like this teeny tiny seed. And it's also not, ready, the largest plant or tree. So let's just set aside and say that Jesus is not trying to give us an ancient botany lesson. As Fisher said, a parable is trying to tell us something. And as Leilani reminded us, it's most often telling us a hidden truth. So if it's not talking about the size particularly of the seed or the tree, the point at least is this. A small seed gets planted with enough life to sprout and grow. See, the remarkable thing about seeds, whether they're this big or this big, is that there's enough life in there to grow and transform into something new and larger. This is the point where Jesus says, those who have ears to hear, 
here. There's something about the seed that gets planted and it has less to do with its size and more to do where you deposit it. That's what I think the point of Jesus's mustard seed teaching is to some disciples who thought they could do it all themselves. You with me? But before we talk about our friends, the disciples, we see a father who is desperate and he reaches into his soul's pockets and he finds nothing but a moth that flies out like the cartoon and the teeniest, tiniest shred of hope. And he's going to fall down before Jesus and he's going to place one of the last ditch vestiges of trust and hope he has. And he's going to say, they couldn't do something with it. Jesus, can you? We've all been this father, haven't we? We've all been a father who is desperate begging. He's asking and waiting. This week, as we read this in our Lent book, The Unvarnished Jesus, and as I was preparing for this message, I could not shake this question. Do you think that the father prayed to God for healing and deliverance for his son? You have a hundred bucks to place a bet. You going to take that bet? Yes or no? Yes. I would too. I'd take that bet all day long. If you've been a literal father, if you've been a human being that loves another person that is suffering and struggling, you're, be you're begging God, you're praying. But he's not just asking, he's waiting. Because the son is suffering with epileptic seizures and we get a glimpse that there's something more, something sinister at work. Because it's not that he just has seizures, is that these seizures are trying to take his life. I need to make an important point here. Ancient people understood when you're sick and when there's something more going on. I think in modern times, we tend to read into this text and say, uh, epileptic, done. Take some meds, you'll be good. No, they are not just assuming he has these seizures and it must be because the demon. There are sick people, and then there's something else. There seems to be a sick person with something else. So let's not just read back and assume that these people couldn't understand that sometimes you're just sick. There's something deeper going on, which is why this father is so desperate. And what's remarkable is that within Mark's telling of the tale, we get the famous line, he opens his pockets, he has one grain left, they haven't been helping me, Jesus, I need you, please, he's dying, and Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. No, no, no. He doesn't say it. In Mark, the language reads that he croaked it. He groaned it. He scraped the bottom of faith's barrel and he threw it at Jesus' feet and says, I want to believe. Give me some help. This is a person that's desperate with a kid that is desperate. 
And then the church people come and say, we'll take care of this. I've got a word for you. You should be reading your Bible more, friend. God has a plan. Meanwhile, nothing is changing. There's an idea of faith that's now being challenged. And the idea that's being challenged is that life events and bad circumstances happen according to a formula. The universe is so scary that we want to see event A and say, oh, that happened because of issue B. And so in order to remedy this, we just need solution C. And you say, I don't think that way, except that we might approach every disaster with a question like, why God? What have you done? And if the world operates specifically where every event traces every moment and everything back to God, everything good or evil, then we have to say, okay, was I at any point at fault? Did this happen because of me or did this happen because you're angry? And then we start to go about looking for solutions. But the reality is that there are so many forces and God is so much more mysterious that to find the right coin or the right prayer or the right formula is to miss the mystery of a world that is riddled with suffering. So much suffering that Jesus will tell his disciples again, even I will suffer. God will allow it. But God will be with me, and in some mystery, I will save a suffering world from death through death. So the better question is not why has this happened, but perhaps where are you with me? Or what are you forming in spite of this? It's an idea of faith that God is a vending machine, and if we just had a coin, if we just had the right word or prayer or fix, we'll be all right. And I want to introduce you to a father who believes but needs help with his unbelief. He's desperate. He's scraping the bottom of the barrel. He has a faith that's life-tested. I was talking to somebody in our church this week that says, we don't have a faith many times that is rugged enough for life that gets thrown at us. Brian Zond in his book has said in our readings that easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity. Easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity doesn't prepare us to ask big questions, to sit in doubt, to sit and walk with God through suffering. This idea of faith that A plus B equals C. If I just put the right coin and do the right thing and not sin so God won't be angry, this is not how life works. That's not life tested. Read Job and find that bad things happen to all kinds of people. So our faith must move beyond this intellectual ascent, beyond it, not without it. 
And it must move into our bones to say, it's one thing to sing the words, I trust you and it's well, and it's a whole other to really know it and believe it in our bones when things don't go our way. This is what a life-tested faith, a biblical faith, might look like, even if it's as small as a mustard seed. Faith, at its core, literally is another synonym, a word for trust. Have faith in this rope enough to descend down a cliffside. That's having faith. Faith is trust that God will get me through even though I'm struggling and even though I'm suffering. This is why we see this mantra in our church. The father falls at the feet of Jesus, trusting that he can do something about it. So we say, we pray believing God can. We ask that God will. And we trust that God loves us no matter what. Even if it doesn't go our way. And even if we feel like we're pumping all the coins into the vending machine, we trust that he loves us, that he's with us and for us, even if it doesn't go our way. Faith at its core is trust. That's why faith involves belief. We believe that he can, but it moves beyond it. We have to get out of our mind, into our heart, and into our feet. What do I mean by that? Write down James chapter 2, the famous faith and works. A real faith works itself out. A real faith says, God, I trust that even if I give you some of this money, that I'm going to make it through the end of the month. I trust that if I forgive this person, though we may not reconcile, there's something forming me and transforming me when I trust your way, not my own. God, I trust that if I pray and step out and really make this move that you're calling me, that you don't just call me to it, you will bring me through it, even on the other side of death. It's one thing to say, I believe that I'll go to heaven. It's a whole other to hitch your wagon to Jesus and live until you die, trusting that you'll wake up and see him on the other side. A real faith moves beyond belief, not in spite of it. We need belief. Faith is about belief, but it gets into our bones, even down to our feet. So therefore, faith is practical reliance on the living God. Faith must become life-tested. I wrote life-proof with a question mark because I wonder if our faith is tested and strong enough to where what works by the still waters also works in the valley of the shadow of death. It's one thing to say, God, I love you, and God is good, and God is for me, and God is with me when things are rocking and rolling. It's a whole other to sit there and say, God, you're with me, with tears streaming down your face as you scrape the bottom of the faith barrel and you say, I've got one mustard seed left, but you're all I've got and I'm trusting you with it. This is why Brian Zahn said in this reading on this text, you see, faith is organic, living, and capable of growth. Faith is like a seed, not a coin. And the thing about seeds is no matter their size, there's life in it. 
And it matters less about its size and more about where it's planted. So in what way is Jesus inviting us to see him more clearly this week? The size of the seed of faith is not as important as where it's planted. Are we looking to Jesus and planting our trust in him? I had another conversation with someone in our church about this day's reading, which is part of why I wanted to preach it this week. And it was talking about how Abraham is the image and father and hero of faith. And this person was saying, dude, but Abraham was kind of a mess. And I was like, yeah, I think that's the point. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer. Jacob, man. He's a, he's a nut and tricky and mischievous. Like, go through the Rolodex, and we're all mixed bags. But if Abram, who becomes Abraham, can put his faith to his feet and trust this God that he was getting to know, what happens is that the garden of his soul becomes larger and larger and larger. And the little yeses that mark his journey, however fraught and mixed of saint and sinner it is, we see in him and so many of our biblical fathers and mothers a people that are resilient and stubborn in saying, God, I'm gonna trust you in this, even though it doesn't make sense and even though I'm not perfect. Now, let me mix a metaphor here. I'm going to borrow from the great N.T. Wright to try to get at what I mean by why it matters where it's planted. Let's say that you wanted to see the moon. It's dark, it's nighttime, you're in your house, and let's say that you wanted to see a moon. And you have a mirror, a window, not a mirror, a window, and it's tiny. Can you see the moon through a tiny window? Yeah. If what? It's there. It's facing the moon. What good is an enormous window facing the wrong direction? I'm going to walk over to this huge window. Look how beautiful. It, I could see like the yard, the trees. I could see everything out over here. And then somebody's saying, dummy, the moon is over there. Why can't I see the moon? Because you're not in a posture that's looking toward the right direction. This is why I think a mustard seed of faith planted in trust that God can get us and move. And even if he doesn't, we trust that he loves us no matter what. It's about our orientation of our hearts and our heads. These disciples are standing at an enormous window and they're saying, we got this. We got this kingdom of God business on lock. Don't worry. And Jesus comes down the mountain and says, um, taps their shoulders and he's going to invite them to turn around. We've all been the disciples, haven't we? We expect the same results. I've lived life. I know that if I keep going to church and keep praying enough and keep reading my Bible enough and keep giving sporadically and keep serving sporadically and just keep doing the thing, that life will be easy, cheesy, cotton candy. 
And so we think if we string enough everyday life together that this thing is good. I mean, I just wake up every morning and then I put the key in my ignition and the car starts and then I make it safely to work. And so I've got this thing. What's going on in our everyday life and what's going on with these disciples is they say, we've exercised demons before. We've healed people before. You can read about it in the Gospels. They have potential and authority. But that doesn't mean that in this moment, precisely, they are activated and attuned or looking in the right direction. Jesus walks down with some disciples that are looking in a big old window and they think they see the whole thing and they've got it all figured out. It's almost as if, like N.T. Wright also says, They've swam in the ocean, and they are just crisscrossing like those Ironman triathletes. They're going out and in. They're rocking and rolling. They come back onto the sand, and they say, that was a breeze. Man, I can really rip it up. And then they say, let's go swim again. And they said, same time, same place, same bat channel. And they wake up, and they go to the same spot and they drift out into the water the next day, and then they start to swim, and they're straining and struggling, and then they start to look up and realize they've drifted hundreds of yards to the left. Then they see their brother is struggling and gasping for air, and they see that his head is below the surface, because all of a sudden the undertow has kept him and swept him away, and they realize what any seasoned lifeguard does is that the ocean one day is not the same ocean the next day. That your life today may not be your life tomorrow. That your car might start tonight, but it might not start tomorrow. That your body might wake up tomorrow and it might not wake up the next day. And so the invitation is to resolve to involve God in the littlest things to train your muscles in such a way that when we realize we've been looking out the wrong window and doing everything in our own strength, we've handled this before, when the ocean starts to sweep you away, the lifeguard can reach in, grab your hands, and remind you, you need me. It's going to get rough out there. We've been like these disciples. We've been needing help. Jesus is frustrated and he basically says, you guys should have figured this out by now. When you ran around exercising demons and healing people, was it because you had some magic fingers? Or is it because God has endowed you with the kingdom power and presence of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit will become resident 40 days after Jesus is raised, but they have a taste of something of his authority from on high. And they think that just because it worked before, it's going to work again. And he says, how much can you really do without me? This should be a reminder. Resolve to involve God. Faith as practical reliance. Every day, God, thank you that I woke up today. Thank you that the car started. There's a reason that when people come back from Africa, 
They start being a fart around their wife and kids. For example, in theory, like when they came back from Kenya and South Africa a few years ago, and my kids started complaining about food, and I said, you'll eat what you can because you don't know how sad these babies got it. You'll love your hot shower because you don't really. It's living in a mindset that we should be grateful for every breath. And even if it's a small window, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus saying, thank you, would you, for every little thing, training us for the days it gets rough. This is why I think in verse 21, it gets added on to the text. This stuff is hard, man. This won't come out without fasting and prayer. What does Lent do? We've been talking about for two weeks. Tries to tune you in, to reset, to recenter. Man, you've been walking through January and February like me, and your resolutions are long gone, and you've got some junk and things. And Lent gets you back on track and shaking the dust off. I'm going to give because I trust. I'm going to pray because I'm looking to you for help. And I'm going to fast to disengage from what's ordinary so that I may more fully engage with you. There's something about fasting and prayer that tunes us in. On their own, the disciplines can do nothing, Richard Foster said, you remember. But they get us to a position and allow us to be acted upon. It's a seed that gets planted, hidden in our soul, and watch God grow. Guys, you've got such little faith, I'm not even sure it's a mustard seed. You guys have got to tune in and resolve to involve Jesus, not just when you're drowning. That's that other question then. What is the varnish that needs removing from our image of Jesus in his way that we've arrived, that you've got it figured out? I was talking to somebody else in our group this week. Would you make a commitment with me that if we're still following Jesus and around for many decades to come, that if I've got it all figured out to every question, and that I know exactly how church should be done and what songs to be sung, would you slap me across the face and say, Jesus is too big and there is too much yet to be discovered of his life and love? It grieves my heart that Christians who have followed Jesus for five decades are becoming less loving, not more loving. It grieves my heart that American evangelicals are more certain and less open to the mystery and wonder of a God who continually surprises us. Again, leave the hardwood floors Jesus is Lord. God is good. We are rescued through the cross and resurrection. I'm not saying uproot the beautiful hardwood floors. I'm saying that you might not have it all figured out. And if we're still showing up in neighborhood groups a few decades from now, and we start reading this book again, are you going to have the same answers to the same questions? Let me ask you this. Do you know your best friend Better now than you did when you were eight years old? Do you know your spouse more intimately now than you did when you got engaged? Yet, so many of our churches are an exercise in regurgitating the same stock answers 
And what I see throughout the story of Scripture is the God continually inviting us to take a step and learn something new about who he is and how to love. Leave room for faith to sprout, root, transform, and expand in the garden of your soul. Jesus will surprise you. Please don't get to the point where you figured it all out and he will never surprise you again. I promise you he's trying. You're just not listening if you're at that point. You should be reading these stories and these red letters, and if you're not surprised at Jesus' response in verse 17, you're not really reading Jesus. This is shocking. There's something about a varnish that actually softens an image. We put a varnish on things to smooth it out. Maybe our varnishes don't have room for Jesus, who's fully human as well. Leave room for faith. Plant that seed and don't start filling it up and around because you got to leave room for this thing to sprout and grow. When I was about Emma's age, 10 years old, although she turned 11 yesterday, oh my gosh, when I was about 11 years old, I went to Six Flags with my friend and it was Fright Fest. And I talked a big game and Toby's laughing because if you know me now, I live for Fright Fest. Not exactly, but I love scary things. This is why Jesus can surprise you because I did not like scary things when I was 10 and 11. And so I talked a big game and I went with my friend. And then the sun set and the zombies came out and he said, all right, dude, let's go to these haunted houses. I said, uh, I need to do the sombrero real quick. And so I did the sombrero. And then I got off and I said, man, that was fun. I want to do the sombrero again. And he said, okay, I'm going to go to the haunted house. Okay, I'll catch up with you. And he goes, okay. And then his mom said, I'll stay with Adam. Because the mom knew what the score was. And I rode, I'm not exaggerating, I rode the sombrero 20 times that night. It's a good ride. Thanks, bro. I rode the sombrero 20 times because that was long enough for him to go to three haunted houses without me. And I thought this week about my faith journey because in October, thank you, church, for pastoral appreciation, one of the things we got was season passes and so we went to Six Flags during Fright Fest. And as we were riding that sombrero, what did I say? Dude, I rode this thing 20 times in October about 26 years ago. And I was thinking about how what if in 2022, all I wanted to do was a sombrero. And then even Emma and Nora are saying, hey, there's that pirate ship right there. Let's go do that. But I also started to think about how I said, let's just go try the Texas Giant. And they said, I'm not ready for that. And then I wrote it, and I was like, they ain't ready for that. Knox was. And so I think about our own faith journey. And I think about how there's so much more to experience. And I just hope that we're not riding the same ride and missing something new. 
I wonder if there's something that the Holy Spirit is continually inviting us and nudging us, and we keep saying, I'm good. I love the sombrero. Yeah, it's a good ride. But there's so much more at Six Flags, isn't there? And so I also explain it this way. I think about how when I went to seminary, the seminary I went to now, I kind of wish I had gone to another place because they had another degree that wasn't even around when I was going through seminary, and I kind of had FOMO. And then I thought back and said, you know what, God, I think that you are guiding and directing my faith journey, and you knew that I needed that seminary at that time in my life. If I can tweak this Six Flags metaphor one more direction, it was as if when I started seminary, he came up and put the you must be this tall to ride, and I couldn't ride the ride I think I wanted to ride. The Holy Spirit knew that I needed this for this time in my life. But he also knows that I don't need to stay there forever. So I want to invite you to Go back through your own story. When you first encountered Jesus as a desperate father and said, please, I'm desperate, help. Or when you encountered Jesus as a confused disciple looking everywhere else but God, when you started that journey, have you put some miles between then and now? Have you learned something new about God now that you could have never conceived of back then? I hope you're shaking your head yes. It's not that you were wrong. It's that at that time and in that place and in that moment, God knew what you needed, what you could ride, and what you couldn't handle. But the idea is that if you still set off with Jesus, as he'll do in Matthew 17, he'll say, uh, I'm still going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. You still want to come? I hope that you'll have the courage and enough of a mustard seed of faith left to say, if he's brought me this far, I can go with him a little further, trusting that he'll give you what you need for the next season. There's so much more to experience in our faith journey than the sombrero. And we don't have to reject our history, but we do have to expect that there is more in our life with God as we grow and follow. So I'll close with this. We've all been this child as well. Surprised at a God that can come and make the impossible possible. If you had another $100 to bet, do you think that this child had stood before other healers and doctors I'd take that bet, yes. But there's something about Jesus. He was the first one to turn the impossible possible. There was something about the freedom when the darkness and the fog of evil lifts and his eyes see clearly the person standing in front of him and seeing in him life and light and all of a sudden what he never thought possible for the rest of his life is now possible, healed, forgiven, and freed.
We've all been this child with a fresh start and a new opportunity. Do you think his life was ever the same after this encounter? No. And I'm willing to bet that his father and he planted their seeds and found a harvest of transformation and newness and life. How has your faith evolved or enlarged? What was the life catalyst that brought your faith to the crucible of life's test? Richard Rohr talks about there are two great forces that form us in this world, great love and great suffering. Some of you experienced a love like none other, and it set your life on a new trajectory. And some of you have experienced suffering and darkness. Both of them are forming you. But do you still have room for your faith to grow? Leave room for those seeds because it's not the size that's as important as where it's planted. May we be a people who look to Jesus for who he is. May we pray a prayer that says something like, I'm giving you the trust that I have in this moment. And maybe we're scraping the bottom of the barrel or maybe it's on full. But Lord, I give you what I have, trusting that you have more to give. That it might be multiplied in your hands as these seeds grow. I don't know what shape it'll take. I don't know what the shrub will look like. I don't know if it'll be a tree or a sprout, but I give you what I have in this impossible situation. I give you what I have of my life in faith and trust that you can cause growth. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.